Perception. Perception is reality. Reality. Perception is reality. Reality. Some talk shows think all of their opinions are right. This one, this one knows they are. This is Perception is Reality. Christopher H. Bilbury is a no-nonsense, well, maybe a little bit of nonsense, political activist, local government watchdog, and all-around good Hoosier and God-fearing American citizen. Is this guy for real? Holding lawmakers accountable and educating citizens on the importance of participating in their local government with a dab of national and world politics and a little pop culture and maybe some real-life common sense. This, this is, is Perception is Reality. And this is Christopher H. Bilbrey. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this 95th episode of Perception is Reality. I am your host, Christopher H. Bilbrey. It's good to be with you, and I want to thank you for joining me and giving me a little bit of your time. We have a wonderful episode planned for you. We will be talking with a gentleman from Lancaster, Lancashire, England. In just a moment, he'll be joining us on the phone We'll be listening to how they are dealing with the same things that we're dealing with here in the States. COVID-19 being shut down. The anxiety that, of course, we are all feeling as humans no matter where we live. Their economy being in the toilet and anything else that might pop up along the way. Before we join with our guest today, I do want to take this opportunity to ask you all to share the show with everyone you know. Remind everyone we can be found on all all major podcast hosting sites simply by searching Bilbrey, B-I-L-B-R-E-Y, podcast. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Bilbrey 318. All right, so we're going to take a quick break to get that out of the way so we don't have to interrupt our guest once we get him on the phone. You're listening to episode 95 of Perception is Reality. I'm Christopher H. Bilbrey. We'll be right back. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this podcast. Now we go on the record with a one-on-one interview designed to engage, entertain, or enrage you. Perception is reality. On the record. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. This is episode 95 of Perception is Reality. I'm your host, Christopher H. Bilbrey, and we are right now joined on the phone by Mr. Jack Riverman, all the way across the pond from Lancaster, Lancashire, England. Mr. Riverman is a podcaster. He is a radio aficionado. He is currently employed in the Royal Navy during this very scary time dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic that has not only gripped America and England, but the entire world. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join with me in welcoming Mr. Jack Riverman to the program. Jack, welcome. It's good to have you. How are you doing? Oh, I'm very well, thank you, Chris. And yourself? I'm doing well. Just trying to comply with these stay-at-home orders and not go mad. It has been a chore, let me tell you. 
Before we get started, I do want to note just for the record that we are recording this on Friday the 17th of April 2020. It is 1.15 p.m. my time, which makes it 7.15 p.m. British time. And in the States, it is rainy, cold, and gray. It's about 40 degrees Fahrenheit. What's it like in your neck of the woods uh well that's fahrenheit so uh, over here under the uh, the yoke of the european union which we've just uh, recently shirked off um we're having to use degrees celsius and uh, i think you're looking at about 13 degrees c that's about 55 degrees fahrenheit so you're doing a little bit better than us but is it raining um, <laughs> um england is uh, perennially rainy yep. it's uh, summer yep summer usually comes on a wednesday and uh, yeah today is no exception <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad that you're joining us. This is something that we've actually talked about on and off for a while, having you on. And we started talking that it would be good to have you on now because we're currently, even though we live in much different areas, all dealing with the same thing due to this COVID-19 virus. So we just wanted to kind of have you on talk with you a little bit about that, what you guys are facing in England, how your response to this is, and and pick your brain a little bit. Try to bridge that gap a little bit, if you will, between America and England and, and other locations. I've got a gentleman from Russia that I'm going to be speaking with coming up, but I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about what's going on in your country and how you guys are responding to this. So if you would, tell the listener a little bit about yourself. Cool. Well, uh, I'm originally uh, from Lancashire and, um, you know, considering these interesting times, which by the way is something of an old Chinese curse, I think um, <laughs> I'd like to, you know, sort of flip that around and take this opportunity to maybe build some links between uh, uh, us over in Lancashire and uh, you over there in the great state of Indiana. Sure. So uh, what do I, yeah, what do I do? Um, I'm a submariner in the Royal Navy um, and I've got a medical background. I'm currently uh, training as a leading medical assistant um, and I've, I've, I've been a medical first responder uh, just in light industry in the past. So I've got a, a bit of a background there. So obviously the, the nature of what we're experiencing at the moment, almost a third of the planet is under lockdown, you know, state enforced lockdown at the moment. So being a big, uh, I suppose, can you be a fan of politics? I'm more fascinated by it than anything else. It's sort of like Stockholm syndrome, yes. you know? So it's, uh, it's the combination of, uh, of politics and medicine condensed into to one foul mixture. So uh, here I am, I suppose, to, to talk to you about it. That's fantastic. And so tell the folks, how long have you been in the Royal Navy? About a year now? Yeah, it's, it's about a year. I've, um, the whole process took about three years because it's a particular role that I applied for. Okay. And uh, you need, yeah, you need to pass some some fairly fairly sturdy exams, and uh, yeah, as anybody with a military background over there in the states will know the uh, the fizz uh that, you know that's pretty tough too so got myself in shape and went on a load of exercises and so on and so forth but here i am but um what with everything that's been happening at the moment i'm actually working with the uh, royal army medical corps um because we've sort of all been amalgamated into separate units and we go and 
go and help where where we're needed, you know, sort of all been brought under one roof at the moment. Sure, absolutely. And so because of that position, have you been dealing with anybody that has been sick or suspected to be sick? Well, basically, we've split down into into different units and there's been uh, so four med and five med. They've been dispatched and they're mostly involved with sort of picking up the slack so nurses and more qualified personnel can get on with their jobs. Um, there's a few courses going on. They like euphemistically call them the COVID courses. Uh, I've just passed mine, and it's just all about intubation and ventilation and that kind of thing. Uh, so there's 16 med reg. They've uh, they're like a, a mobilised regiment. They mostly set up tents and deal with logistics, things of that nature. Um, and submariners. I mean, contrary to what people would think, uh, we don't spend a lot of time underwater we're qualified for that job <laughs> that's the job that we do but um the training that we have is a lot longer than the normal navy medics so uh like a lot of submariners went to afghanistan for example okay. um yeah yeah so uh, we're we're used uh basically for it's, it's something that we call cbrn um so it's chemical biological radiological and nuclear uh, countermeasures so it, it it basically entails decontamination, like extreme deep cleaning. Um, but for me, uh, I've, I've done a lot of work in, in pharmacies over the last uh, few weeks. So it's it's basically making sure the, the right drugs get to the right people. Um, that'll be where, when I'm in my smart uniform and when I'm in my uh, dirty uniform for a, a better description it's it's gas mask on uh oh, wow. like full charcoal suit yeah full charcoal suit on and basically uh checking people and doing triage before they before they enter the hospital but uh, i've not been dispatched to any of the nightingale units so anybody uh, in the u.s they might not not know about this but we've um here in the uk built a number of uh large hospitals 10 times the size of your average hospital in uh, the great population centres, and they've they've been built in a in a matter of weeks. Um, so there's a few few of our lads who've gone there for for guard duty, and uh, you know, like e even some of the weapons engineers have gone, and they're just helping to to labour and do logistics and so forth. But none of our medics have gone and done that. We're generally speaking, um, supplementary staff to make sure that we can plug the gaps that exist currently in the NHS. So because of the lack of testing. What's happened is that a lot of frontline medical staff that have been employed by the NHS uh, have been isolated and quarantined at home because they've perhaps exhibited symptoms. But some of the symptoms can actually mirror they can actually mirror exhaustion, for example, and yeah. things like that. So in the absence of testing, that that knocks a qualified medic out of the game for a couple of weeks. So it, it creates little pockets where um, you know work really needs to be filled in, kind of like supply teachers really, if you have that kind of thing over there. Okay, yeah, right, right. That's really interesting because we're seeing some of the same things happen here, like in the state of Washington, which was the first hardest hit area, the epicenter for the United States of the COVID-19 virus outbreak. They too had set up those military style medical hospitals to take overflow patients and they are now coming down the backside of the curve so they've broken those hospitals down and they've now sent their medical equipment to other locations that have needed the medical equipment. 
And so, for example, Washington is on the backside of this, and it appears in the last couple of days that New York might now be entering either the peak or, or starting to enter the backside of the curve. But there are still other hot spots like New Orleans or Indianapolis, which is the capital of the state of Indiana. In your area, have you guys been following the rate of infection or the number of deaths from this? What are you guys looking at as a country or regionally or in your hometown? Well, uh, there's two sort of things that spring to mind there. So just to answer the second part of your question straight away, we're looking roughly at about 15,000 deaths right now, though there is some comorbidity there, and I'll explain that for your listeners later. So um, of the people that have been tested, uh, about about 100,000 uh, uh, confirmed positive cases. So that gives you a rough idea, um, 100,000 and 15,000 dead. So that's um, the sorry state of affairs that we're sort of presented with today. But when you're uh, triaging uh, a patient, you know, we can use this same mechanism for looking at triage in a country. You, you deal with the things uh, that are appropriate first. So when I approach a casualty, uh, you know, I'm checking that the area is safe for, for me to engage with it. When I'm looking at the casualty, the first sort of things I'm looking at are, are catastrophic hemorrhages um, and checking like airway maintenance, things of that nature. So you deal with the things that are most life-threatening first, and then you sort of speculate and do your secondary surveys and, and deal with what might be affecting the patient in a damaging way, but less less serious, you know, so you'd be monitoring their pulse and things later on. Same is kind of true for when we look at this, uh, when you're sort of triaging a nation, if you will. So coming back to what you said about these uh, large hospitals, your version of the, the Nightingale hospitals having been torn down, I think there's a sort of a prophylactic measure in terms of building them in the first place to make sure that there was uh, the appropriate level of care delivery should that uh, need arise, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. But um, there's, if, if they're not being used, like my and the same is kind of true here in a lot of ways that we certainly haven't reached capacity in terms of our, our, our medical faculties um it, that that sort of passed the triage stage do you see what i mean Absolutely. so we, we saw the yeah we saw the disease and reacted very quickly which i think is an appropriate measure but as far as COVID-19 goes, I think the secondary effects of the disease are actually not physical. Um, in a lot of ways, they're economic. In yeah. a lot of ways, they're, they're political and legal. Um, and in terms of healthcare, the thing that, that bothers me is that we've had to cancel, um, like, Operations for people, oncology has gone to the the back of the queue. You know, things of this nature. These these are people that desperately, desperately need care. And I think that these Nightingale hospitals and, and whatever facilities you've got in the States, those essentially should have been reserved for COVID-19 and, and respiratory associated conditions and, and used specifically for that purpose. And the remainder of the existing medical infrastructure should have been left uh, to the purpose it was designed to serve, so that you only interrupt that treatment at the very last last point. Does yes. That, does that make any sense to Absolutely. you? Absolutely. That's something we've been uh, arguing over here for for weeks now is, you know, how how is that being handled? There was a situation where the United States Navy had a massive ship that apparently had something like a thousand beds 
on board to be able to care for the sick. But it wasn't supposed to deal with COVID-19 patients. It was going to deal with all of the regular patients, which would then allow the hospitals to deal with the COVID-19 people. But then we found out that they started dealing with COVID-19 patients anyways, but they never needed nearly the number of beds that they had. I think they're saying now that there were only ever 20 patients aboard that ship so it doesn't really make sense and to me i know it's above my pay grade but as an observer i think that we've done things a little backwards kind of like you said it would have made sense for them to put the ship in place to deal with the covid19 patients and allow the hospitals to deal with the regular day-to-day issues but like i said that's above my pay grade i just think that when we reflect on this using the rearview mirror of history and we reflect on how this was all handled, I think that we're going to see things that we fumbled that just shouldn't have been fumbled. But then again, I think that comes down to leadership. It comes down to communication and what we're seeing as a lack of communication and lack of any true leadership here. And I mean that from the top down and the bottom up. We're, we're getting it on the local levels where our mayors and our countywide commissioners uh, to the state governors are all kind of running around like chickens with their heads cut off, pointing in opposite directions. And we're seeing that on the federal level as well. And I feel like that has helped to produce a lot of panic and a lot of confusion. And uh, it just seems like it's not... <laughs> this has definitely shown that we were not prepared for this and I hope that we learn a massive, massive lesson because my fear is that we have shown terrorists and we've shown other quote-unquote bad actors that all you have to do to shut America down is, you know, get a few people sick. And I'm not downplaying the virus by saying a few people, but if they say, okay, we've released this virus, you know, we shut down and, and the leaders go into, you know, overdrive of pointing their fingers and passing the buck, and it puts us in a really bad spot. So I'm hoping that we're taking something away from this, um, and, and you know, I, I, that, that's interesting to see how that will be reviewed later on absolutely well the thing is um i think we can we can come back to causes and, and medicine in a moment but just to sort of glance a military eye over this state of affairs i mean one of the things that i i've been learning about is this cbrn situation and one of the main things that um that particular kind of warfare is used for it's asymmetric warfare it's when uh, somebody weaker attacks somebody stronger yeah. and a lot of the damage is actually designed um to, to cause economic problems. Yeah. So when uh, the, he had the fall of the Soviet Union and uh, we, we trained the Afghans how to fight an asymmetric war, and what, what happened when it, when it was the West's turn to go in there, <laughs> they used the, the very same things that back, back at us. And it's extremely effective, you know, um, credit to them, I suppose. But, you know, if you've got a $100 missile and you can take down a $35 million aircraft with it, you know, and, and you've stretched stretched supply lines you know halfway across the world that becomes an extremely expensive endeavor to, to, to you know to partake in do you know and that, that's how you how you win a war in that respect and the thing is about uh, chemical biological and radiological uh you know weapons yeah is well perhaps less so with radiological but certainly with chemical and biological like any any old person 
can use them really any you know anybody with a, a bad attitude uh, and, and the desire to harm others and innocent people has the capacity and the ability to hurt other people which I think is terribly dangerous. It is. You're you're right on the money there. That's that is a problem. Uh, let me ask you this: How is this affecting your economy? Like over here, we're at a standstill. Everything is shut down. All businesses, restaurants, bars, everything is shut down. They are able to do takeaway. You can drive there and they'll bring it out to you. Or a lot of places are doing delivery that might not have used to have done delivery. So they're trying to come up with creative ways to keep their doors open. But their businesses are still hurting. A lot of places like barber shops and, and uh, bars, pubs, they're just out of luck. What's going on in England? Are pubs shut down? Are your restaurants and other little diners shut down? You know, I lived in London, which is a large city, obviously, so everything was right there and on top of each other. I imagine all of that's shut down, but how is this affecting that and what's open and not? As far as our um, mom and pop businesses, as you'd call them, like uh, just we call it the high street, that's been suffering for a long time. So over the, the last few years, the economic downturn, non uh, COVID-19 related has resulted in reduced footfall through many of the, the towns in the UK. So most of your smaller shops, they'll uh, they'll get boarded up and who comes in? It's, bi it's big chains, uh, so your McDonald's, your Primark, things like that. So uh, a lot of us locally uh, we, we're trying to buy local uh, and buy British for a number of reasons. You know, it's better for our own economy. Um, and, and in, you know, I suppose from an environmental perspective, you know, it just shortens supply lines, especially if you're eating seasonally. It's better for you, that kind of thing. But then this this comes along, this this dreaded disease. And uh, we're experiencing the same same kind of things that you've described there. It, it's quite worrying. But the people that are going to suffer the people that have already suffered you know the big chains they can afford to uh, to weather this storm you know amazon is going to do particularly well out of this for example yeah. um yeah yeah but uh, if if it's a small uh, retailer or a, a, like a, a small to medium sized business they're not going to do well at all because they're not going to be able to get their, their staff in to, to operate them just because of the lockdown. So there's another problem that's happening, which is if you become a furloughed worker in the sense that uh, you should be working but aren't, the government has brought in this uh, guarantee that 80% of your expected or predicted wage will be paid to you. So that doesn't get paid to you straight away. Your employer has to pay that, and then your employer has to go to the state with their hand out and go, can I have the money back, please? And there's been a real problem problem with getting some of those payments through you know that's enough to cripple quite a lot of small small businesses and cottage industry as we call it and it, it's it's terribly unfair you know they, they've already got a, a an enormous amount of regulations uh, you know and, and and wage rules that mean that it's quite prohibitive to to start a business that of, of any any scale in the first place and then they're competing with people that have the industrial capacity to uh, uh, absorb all of the physical locations from which they could trade so it's sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place it's um it's kind of tragic it's kind of tragic uh, sure. People are working. Um, we can get food. Um, there's, uh, you know, these these stockpilers and stuff. That that's all finished now. Every, everyone's had their filler toilet paper soup for the last <laughs> few weeks. I think. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, now, now when you go to uh, like the supermarket, um, you, you know, yeah, there's there's 
lads in high-vis jackets and they make sure that everyone's two metres apart and there's a one-in-one-out policy in the supermarket. So I think they're allowed 100 people in at a time, yeah. depending on how big they are. Yeah, and it's one-in-one-out. You get your food and you go home. So you're allowed to go shopping once a week. I mean, people break that rule because it's hard to police it. Sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, and uh, you're allowed to go out once a day uh, for exercise. But that, that's that, that's pretty much it. That's that's pretty much it. That's an interesting point because one of the things that's happening here is they're telling us we don't have to just stay shut in. We can go outside. We can be outside in the open air. We can take walks. We can go to the park. We we can go to state and national parks, which is something that Americans are really big on. Like, for example, in our area here in Indiana, we have a, a place called Prairie Creek Reservoir, which is where the city water for Muncie, Indiana comes from. And it's a big man-made lake. There's approximately like 1,300 acres of water and 800 uh, acres of land for recreational use. There are hills and valleys and trees and trails and there's a beach and you can swim and fish and you could literally be out there doing your thing and be far, far away from anybody which is something they were all telling us was okay at first and then now they're kind of going back and forth on that because at first they were saying, yeah, go out there then they said, oh, you kids can't use the playground equipment so they closed that off then they closed the beaches off then there were issues on whether or not you could camp out there in a tent or a camper, an RV space that you pay for. At first they were saying yes, then they were saying no, and it's just all this crazy back and forth. Which again comes down to the piss poor leadership and communication issues that we're having. But how are they handling that for you guys? Because of course you could go out and take a jog in Winchester, Indiana or Muncie, Indiana and be completely away from people. However, if you go and try to take a jog in New York, you might not be able to stay away from folks. And that's the same as in England. If if you live in Soho in London and you're going out for a jog, well, that's just not something that probably can happen because you're going to be around people closer than what they said we should be around people. However, if you're in Manchester, England, that's very similar to like Muncie. So it's not like a one size fits all in this instance. And I'm interested in how they are handling that over there. Right. Uh, I've got two things to say on that. One social uh, and one sort of geographical. So starting with the second, uh, we do have versions of national parks. We, we, we call them areas of outstanding natural beauty. <laughs> okay. um, so the uh, the Lake District, where it isn't, isn't far from where I'm originally from, that that's one of them. Okay. Uh, but that's not a national park because uh, it's um, resided within. People live there, but it's it's absolutely gorgeous, and I'd uh, implore any of uh, your listeners, you know, Google the Lake District in the UK, have a look at it. Um, you know, it's, it's staggering, really, really nice. Uh, I worked up there in the autumn some uh, years ago, and it was uh, one of the best times of my life. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, sort of leading adventure training, kayaking, and, oh, and yeah. mountain biking, that kind of thing. Yeah, loved it. Um, but there's uh, there are areas that uh, and like essentially state-owned parks and yeah you, you can walk around them there's there's no real issue there until and i think you might find this a little bit staggering um like i think i think it was the uh, the derbyshire police uh 
service, the local constabulary there, found out that people were going and and swimming in a a lake. I'll get back to you about the full um, name of this place because I need to look the article up. But they they threw dye into the water so that anybody that was came out of it (laughs) was dyed blue, and then they uh, they couldn't lie about where they'd been. So yeah, they've been throwing dye in there. You know, so you know, it's just the the state gone mad there. And there's um, there's other there's. Yeah, exactly. There's there's other things as well, and this this leads me on to the, the second point about um, a disparity of enforcement. So somebody was uh, followed across the North Yorkshire Moors by a police drone, um, and it, this happened again in Staffordshire as well, with a speaker on it telling them to to get home, and they, they had letters written to them and and fines for breaching quarantine rules. They were on their own, miles from anywhere, walking their dog in the hills in an area. You know where they pay their council tax. Right. You know, like the, the version of yeah, your version of your state the state tax and local tax. This is this that's their home, that's their back garden, and the police are spending money following them around <laughs> with a drone. I mean, that's that's awful. That's awful. Now, but I could, in a way, not really, but in a way, put up with that if it was across the board. But it, it's not across the board. You bring up going about um, Soho in London. You know, I, at the moment, I'm working near Birmingham, another okay. uh, like big metropolitan centre. Yeah, yeah. And in Birmingham, in Glasgow, in uh, in London, I mean, pe- people are not following the rules. You know, just just have a look at um, just type Westminster Bridge, uh, clapping for the NHS, and you'll see people shoulder to shoulder on Westminster Bridge. And and this is the reason that we have to have. Well, I say this begrudgingly. This is the reason why we're told, really, that we have to have laws. It's sort of like a diet book for thin people, isn't it? You know, if you're already <laughs> yes. thin, you know, you, you know, you don't need the diet book. And if you're fat, you, you're probably not going to. You're probably going to eat it, aren't you? You're probably not going <laughs> to do anything. Else, you know. And this is this is the thing. It's we have we have laws so we can retroactively, retrospectively, you know, deal with people in our society that that aren't, aren't right. like. <laughs> socially like clued in do you know it's right. like i don't want to go around infecting other people i don't need the government to tell me that right um uh, yeah but what this is the thing that's annoying me really here chris is is the disparity of the enforcement so you know you've, you've got the the police sending drones and putting dye uh, and affecting the citizens of the north in that way and then especially down south in london you know people are you know they're still congregating together you know it's a center of infection down there anyway and uh, you know it just seems more than a little bit hypocritical do you know what i mean and this sure. is the thing this whole incident for so many of us has shown just how quickly if not effectively but just how quickly and powerfully the uh, the state and the crippled apparatus of the state can move when it wants to yeah um but it it, it doesn't move move well you know it 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 moves it moves hard and fast but it, it doesn't particularly move well, and I think that's a purely um, intrinsic thing to the the, the nature of, of top-down legislature, top-down enforcement yeah. that's then given to, to atomized uh, like state workers to, to enforce. You know, everybody's got an atomized and individual way of, of, of approaching the law, and you know, you can only police some of these boroughs in London so well. You know, there's only so much they can do. They really would have a riot on their hands um, if they started treating people in those boroughs of London, like they, they're, they're treating people in the north. Yeah, right well, now. we're seeing that same thing here where they're telling us in our cities, yeah, you can go out for a run, you can you can go to the park, and if you're with your family, if it's a mom and a dad and, and uh, two kids, you can go and you can toss the ball around with your kids out at the park as long as you're not around other people. 
and then we hear stories of the police going and arresting a father who's tossing the ball with their daughter, and it's just them, and there's no one else around, and they're they're mouthing them and, and going about that, and there's the gentleman who's arrested because he's fishing by himself, and no one else is around for miles. And that just seems to be so overreaching and so underhanded that it's just hard to conceptualize anywhere, but specifically here, here in America. And I completely understand... We've got to protect each other. We want to protect ourselves. Nobody wants to get sick. Nobody wants to get anybody sick. And I understand that they said, if we do what we're supposed to do, you know, we'll never know. If, if you overreact, you'll never know if we overreacted or not. But if you underreact, we, we would know that. And, and I, you know, I, I, I understand that. I'm really weird. I was following this from China on day one, because I'm I'm kind of a hypochondriac a little bit. I'm definitely a germaphobe. Uh, it's something that my listeners know we've talked about for, for a very long time. Uh, so I started following this really, really early on and like was kind of joking about the masks and things like that. Although I had them and I had some hand sanitizer, I didn't go, you know, stock up and go crazy because it's my belief that people should already have at least a couple weeks worth of food. That's something they've told us forever, at least at least here in the Midwest. And I think they pretty much tell everybody everywhere, you should have two or three weeks worth of non-perishables or drinkable water in your house because of the threat of snowstorms or in some places, earthquakes and different natural disasters. So having two or three weeks worth of food in your house in times like this would stop you from having to go panic buy like everybody was doing with the toilet paper and all of the other weird items that seem to be depleting from shelves without replenishing on the shelves. But yet I also understand because of the economy and people's pay, it's not necessarily easy to just buy two weeks worth of extra food. But I think if you did a little bit at a time, you know, that's kind of what I try to do. And I think if you, if people did that, that might take some of the burden off, but people don't ever do that. And so I'm, I'm not a prepper in the way that, you know, I don't have a bunker, uh, underground and, and all of that, but I try to, uh, you know, be prepared and, and watchful. And, uh, so I was keeping an eye on this early on and people were calling me crazy and uh, I was I was fear mongering and, and all that, and I, I really wasn't. But now we see where where we're at. But now, being almost a month into this, we're starting to see the people who are saying, "All right, we got to get open because what President Trump here said, and love him or hate him, I I, I very much agree with his." statement of the cure cannot be worse than the illness and because we're taking steps to make sure that we don't get sick that has caused us to now have a pretty dire economic situation on our hands and we are in a predicament which will last long after we go back to quote unquote real normal life if we ever go back to something like that. But now we've got people in states that are protesting and they're they're marching around their governor's home protesting because they feel like the government is overreaching. And one of the big things that's going on right now 
people are fighting to go to church. They are wanting to be able to go to their places of worship, the churches, the synagogues, and that's causing lots of distress. There are people that are fighting on both sides of this. You have police officers arresting people attempting to go. You have police officers attempting to find people, to find the actual churches. And you have the question of, wait a minute, don't we have a First Amendment right? And when exactly did that go away? And you have this debate, and right, wrong, or indifferent, this debate at least deserves to be heard. And that being said, there's a gentleman called Hody Johns that I interact with on social media, and he made a post that I absolutely love, and I want to read it to you and then get your thoughts on this. Hody said, we are seeing a misunderstanding of how to rebel against government. It's not ethical to do the opposite of whatever they say. It's ethical to do the right thing regardless of what government says. It's true the government has no real right to shut down churches or anything else for that fact. They have no rights at all, really. But physically, attending church right now might not be the best idea. That's just his opinion, he says. But the beauty of this is you and I, we all get to decide. Do you really want to stick it to the government? If so, be the free market thinker that they hate. Host church online. Provide alternatives to social deprivation. Take care of your congregation. Drop off groceries to those in need. And don't get sick. Behave like the government does not exist and act morally. They really hate believers that take care of each other and act intelligently. Demanding life as normal just shows you've replaced the deity of government with the deity of habit. Instead of either, have faith. Forfeit your blind religion in exchange for a dynamic relationship with God. And so, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, a couple thoughts come to mind. Yes, I want to open things up. I want to get back to normal. I want to be able to go to church. And I want to be able to move about and not have to worry about this. I also don't want to get sick. I don't want to get anybody else sick. How are you guys looking at that? Because you are in a different spot than we are because you don't have a constitution the way that we have and you're working under a different type of government and a different set of laws than than we have. Yeah, we're not a constitutional democracy in the same sense that you are. Um, uh, uh, (laughs) Our separation of powers is quite different as well. Like our executive, although the Queen is the head of state, our executive powers are sort of shared amongst this thing, collective cabinet responsibility, blah, blah, blah. Well, I can go into that another time. But to, to respond to you as far as as the church goes, I'm a churchgoer uh, for my sins, the, the Catholic church, I'm afraid. But yeah, that's, uh, you know, I'm loyal and you, you go with what you're given. Yep. And um, yeah, our churches are shut and you can't go. But what I would say is from a theological perspective, and I would I would like to finish on a Christian message, but uh, I, I would, I'd say that you, you can find God amongst his works. In fact, that, yeah. that's the best place to find him. You know, you know, look, look into your heart and uh, with your own eyes look at what is built and you know that that's where you can you can build your relationship with God you know the the reason that the Bible was printed is so it can come to you rather than you go to it in a lot of ways so yeah um, I I really liked uh, what uh, your man had to say there Uh, absolutely Um, it it, it just it it troubles me that uh, the way people respond to government now is by to interact with it further 
Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah. It, it sort of counter it's like protested in a lot of ways is counterintuitive in that respect. So um, yeah, I do think that that worries me. As far as the uh, the cure being worse than the disease, well, there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. You know, <laughs> Canada's uh, yeah yeah Can- Canada's income tax was uh, a temporary measure for the First World War. You know, I and uh, I'm sure the, the people of Ontario, the, the people of Ontario, especially Quebec, actually on the whole, can tell you that income tax is very much still a staple of life today. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I would really worry about where this is generally going. But um, you know, I I'm not you know going to stand here um, and put my tinfoil hat on or whatever. But at the same time, regardless of of its origins, the uh, it's easy to see what a state will do with an opportunity. It's straight out of uh, Saul Alinsky. It's very much the the Alinsky way of thinking of not letting a crisis go to waste. You saw this with the Patriot Act after 9/11, and in our country after uh, some of the terror attacks that that you'll have seen and the whole Edward Snowden and Julian Assange but we got a similar thing called the 2013 Investigatory Powers Bill very very similar very very big brother-esque um, on the subject of that I would actually recommend anybody out there to read uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World which is um, <laughs> a book all about the uh, long arm of the state in the future uh, and and how it you know permeates every level of, of life and although it's dystopian and uh, hyperbolic in a lot of ways I think there would be some comparisons that you could draw to an event like this being the seed for uh well just think about it like this from tiny acorns giant oak trees grow you know and and that's the same for things that are are, are good like trees and and bad like government programs yeah (laughs) in the states that was pretty much required reading for like ninth grade so for all of you listening if you guys got on and got the uh cheat sheet crib notes because you didn't read it you're really missing out and you should read that book (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is this is the thing. Our, our state education system in the UK, it's uh, I, I'm not particularly impressed with it. And as far as the literature on the syllabus goes, um, they've re- removed Harpalese to Kill a Mockingbird now. <gasps> for, oh God, nef- yeah, yeah, I know it's shocking and it, nefarious reasons that I'll explore with you another time. <laughs> but um, other other books that, that you do read, uh, Arthur Miller's The Crucible, um, and there's a nice little slant about oh, it's bad to hunt communists in there. Yeah, brilliant. Cheers for that. I thought this. <laughs> was an English lesson. Yeah, right. Do you know what I mean? And then, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, and, and there's there's a few a few other books and a few other things that aren't taught. So, right, rightly, you know, you are taught about the Holocaust and so forth and, and World War Two, but um, almost nobody knows what the Holodomor was or the famine in Ukraine or anything like that. Yeah. You know, I, I've had to, to teach teach people a little bit of uh, history regarding the uh, Soviet Union because um, the only things people know about it are post nineteen forty five. Uh, right. And even then, it, it's 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 quite stark. So, um, yeah, I, I don't I don't really rate uh, the education system, but this is maybe one of the positive things that could be gleaned from COVID nineteen, which is a lot of people probably are spending a little bit more time with their families. Uh, people are probably going to consider things like homeschooling after this. You yeah. know, I've seen some of the programs that people are drawing up for their children, and um, I, I, and I'm amazed. I, I think there's a lot of parents out there doing fantastic work with their children, and finally they've they've got the opportunity to do that. You know, everybody wants to be a good parent, so to not take this chance to do that and to review. Um, 
how you're raising your child would, would kind of be a shame, I think. But um, few parents are doing that. I think the vast majority of people are taking on board an opportunity to engage, you know, not just in an academic fashion, but, um, you know, real parents in a, in sure. a real good way with their kids. And so that's, that's maybe something good that can come out of this. I don't know. Yeah, that's right. Hopefully it's given people a chance to explore some of those books and some of those ideas that, that people who engage with government discourse and, and our students of politics and, and, and history uh, have known about for years. And so I think that's great. Well, Jack, we're just about out of time and I want to give you the last word here in a moment. But before I do, I want to say this has been an absolute blast, an absolute joy, and I hope the audience has enjoyed it as much as I have. And hopefully we can set something up so that we can have a standing appointment or maybe do like a monthly show because I would really love a chance to talk with you more, for the audience to be able to hear from you, maybe for them to ask questions that I can relate back to you and we can do what we can to bridge the gap and, and learn about what's going on in both countries. And I do need to say before we go, I'll probably be in trouble for my grandmother for telling you this and saying it here for everyone to hear. But while I was talking to her about doing the interview with you, she said, be sure to tell him to speak English so I can understand what he's saying. I said, he's definitely speaking English. <laughs> well, I'm glad you think so. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> so she has trouble understanding me half the time. It, it is what it is. But it absolutely has been a blast, and I can't thank you enough, and I'll give you the last word. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I clocked off my shift about uh, an hour ago, uh, and I'm currently down on the on the firing range, sat in uh, one of the old helicopters. So, uh, for me, this is uh, quite a nice way to wind down in the evening before I uh, go and get some scran, something to eat. Sure. So, would I do it again? Absolutely, I would. Um, I would really want to um, just help build these connections between all of us living in the West right now because, you know, there's there's a lot of challenging times ahead in a number of different ways. Any, any Anybody freedom-loving, you know, like, uh, I've got your back if you've got mine. I think yeah. that's just how it works. As far as um, anything that I'd like to finish on, um, feedback is, is important to me. I do want to listen to other people's perspectives. So if uh, anybody who's listening to this wants to leave a comment on, on Chris's post, when this gets released, I'll certainly be reading there and, um, you know, I'll reflect on your perspectives. Absolutely. And the final thought that I'd bring to you is the, uh, the piece from the Bible that I will be reading on and reflecting on tonight. I won't actually read you the phrase. I'll, I'll just give you the reference. So from uh, the, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 10, have a look at that. And that's what I'll be thinking on and, and praying on tonight. And when you have a little look at that, um, just try and get in my head, try and get in your, your own head a little bit. It, does this phrase... Uh, Am I bringing it up because it comes from the mouth of the coronavirus? Is it because it comes from the, like, uh, is it is it me? Is it you that I'm trying to, to shine a light on? Is this phrase something from the prophet, from the word of God? Where could you attribute this particular passage to in your life, in your surroundings, in these difficult times? Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 10 have a look at that reflect on it think on it and I, for me i i think god speaks to you in something called revelation where you know you think and you pray on something and whatever comes to you is is the truth you know like jr harding said like everybody holds a fragment of truth so i just want to to be the inception to the, the start to maybe a little bit of truth that you 
dear listener, find for yourself. And uh, many thanks, Chris. And it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Good night and God bless. Cheers to you, mate. Thanks for coming on. And I will be offering my thoughts and prayers for you, for your mates in the Royal Navy and your uh, family and loved ones back home. Ladies and gentlemen, that again was Mr. Jack Riverman from Lancaster, Lancashire, England, currently a member of the Royal Navy. And he is a podcaster as well as a radio aficionado, a dear friend of mine. And I hope you consider what he had to say here. I hope you're able to weigh that against what we're currently dealing with and understand that this is something that has literally affected everybody on the globe. So while we might be separated right now, while we might be dark and bleak and alone, we are still very, very much together. And I hope that you can take that message. Look up Jeremiah 1-10 and reflect on that passage. I hope that you actually will take that opportunity. And I hope that it can bring you a little bit of comfort, happiness, uh, or joy. And I can't wait to speak with Mr. Riverman again. I hope that this is something that we can continue to do. Uh, periodically. You're listening to Perception is Reality. I'm Christopher H. Bilbrey. This is episode 95. We will be right back. Perception. Perception is reality. Reality. Perception is reality. Reality. All right, folks, that's going to do it for this episode 95 of Perception is Reality with Christopher H. Bilbrey. Be sure to look up that Jeremiah 1-10. Also, share the show with everyone you know. Remind them we can be found on all major podcast hosting sites as well as the home link of perception.fireside.fm. Don't forget to check out the merchandise at merchisreality.square.site. And if you have any feedback for Jack Riverman, please email me at khbilbrey at gmail.com. And for all of us here at Perception is Reality, until next time, stay active, stay involved, stay safe, and God bless. You've been listening to Perception is Reality with Christopher H. Bilbrey. Bilbrey. Tune in, like, and subscribe at perception.fireside.fm. Hook up on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Bilbrey318 and on Twitter at PISRBilbrey. Email khbilbrey at gmail.com or get off your butt and call the show at 765 546 9796. Till next time, remember, perception, perception is, is reality. Reality. This has been Perception is Reality with Christopher H. Bilbrey, where we aim for better government through citizen involvement.